Well, my name is Troy Wallace here. If you're a guest here, I'm one of the pastors here at Lookout Valley Baptist Church, and I'm so thankful that you are here with us today, worshiping with us the risen and the reigning Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This morning, I'm going to make a bit of a departure from the normal preaching diet we practice here at Lookout Valley Baptist Church. Normally, we do what's called expositional or exegetical preaching, whereby we preach through a passage of Scripture where the single passage and the main point of that passage becomes the main point of the sermon. But this morning, I'm going to make a brief departure from that for this Easter Sunday. Several months ago, when I was looking forward at our church calendar, and Easter is obviously one we circle with a big red marker, what's happening on Easter, I began thinking and praying about what the Easter sermon would be. And this question came to me, and I began to think about it and process it. The question is simply, what if the resurrection is true? What if it is true? What if it really did occur? Uh, What are the implications for our lives? What are the implications for our future? Hopefully, when you came in, you got a bulletin, and inside that bulletin, there is an outline that looks like this. I invite you to take it out, because instead of looking at just a single passage of Scripture, I've got about 15 we're going to look at this morning. Now, trust me, your roast is not going to burn. We're going to be out in time, but hopefully, we can see from the Bible the answer to this question. What if, what if the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is actually true? Now, for our purposes this morning, we are going to assume the resurrection of Jesus is true. You see, there have been books written and podcasts and sermons and research studies galore around the subject of the validity and the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I've preached a few of those sermons myself. So we're going to assume all that research and all that historical information is true. But if it is true... So what? What are the implications? What does it mean for us today? Because here's the deal. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the foundation of biblical Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the basis for who we are as Christians and all that we do. The reason I say that is because if you go to the history book, the history book of the New Testament, that's the book of Acts and you begin to read through the book of Acts, what you'll discover is that every sermon that was preached by the early church is an Easter sermon. Every sermon preached is a resurrection sermon. The very first sermon in the history of the Christian church was on Pentecost Sunday. We can find it in Acts chapter 2. The apostle Peter preached that message, and that message, friends, was a resurrection sermon. You go to Acts chapter 7, there you have Stephen, and Stephen, just a deacon in the church, but he's on trial for his life before the religious high court in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, and he preaches a resurrection sermon, and you know what they did? They stoned him and killed him because of it. You go to Acts chapter 17, and there's the apostle Paul, this converted Pharisee of Judaism, and he is in Athens, Greece. They're on Mars Hill debating and dialoguing with these philosophical intellectuals. And you know what he says, these high and mighty thinkers? He tells them about the resurrection. You go all the way to Acts chapter 26, and Paul is on trial himself before King Agrippa. And he preaches to King Agrippa and all of his royal entourage a resurrection sermon. I could go on and on, but I think you get the point. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is 
the foundation of biblical Christianity. The first Christians gave their lives. They died proclaiming they saw Jesus alive after they saw him killed. They died martyrs' death. So again, there's overwhelming, compelling evidence that proves the resurrection of Jesus did, in fact, occur. But so what? What does that mean for our lives today? And what does that mean for our lives tomorrow and all of our tomorrows? That's our question for this morning that we're going to wrestle with. And as I've thought through this for several weeks now, I've come around four biblical implications that we can understand and we can see if the resurrection is true. And it is. So we've got about 30 minutes now to get through this. So we're going to go quick. Are you ready? Let's try it again. Are you ready? Let's go. Here's the first one. Number one, if the resurrection of Jesus is in fact true, Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God in human flesh. He is who he claimed to be. That is the creator of the universe wrapped in a man's body. God in the flesh. As I mentioned a moment ago, we are studying. uh, We normally study verse by verse through whole books of the Bible. Uh, We are now in a two-year series through the Gospel of John in all 21 chapters. Over and over again, the Apostle John, Jesus' closest human friend, records and presents to us all the times, many of the times, Jesus claimed to be just this, God in the flesh. I want to show you just a few of them. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. That's a claim of deity. In John chapter 14, verse 9, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In fact, Jesus in the Gospel of John is recorded as making seven different I am statements. These I am statements are not just aspects of his character and his nature, but they are declarations of deity because the name I am means the self-existent one. He is God. He is Yahweh. Look at this list. In John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. As bread, he is the source of all life. In John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I am the door. You don't get there unless you go through him. In John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. And you know what the good shepherd does? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In John chapter 11, verse 25, he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And the most important question you'll ever be asked, do you believe this? In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally, in John 15, 1, he says, I am the true vine. The only way you'll have the sustaining life is if you are connected to the true vine. Again, over and over and over again, Jesus claims, I am. So don't let anybody ever tell you, some skeptic, tell you, you know, Jesus never really claimed to be God. He did it all the time. In fact, the very first one we looked at in John chapter 10, I want you to see that's exactly how his opponents received what he said. Look at John chapter 10, verse 30 again. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. What happened with that declaration? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself, say that last word, God. He declared he was 
God. There was no confusion about the issue. They knew exactly what he was claiming to be. And when they asked for proof of his claim to be God, you know what the proof he gave them was? Look what he said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, the proof of his deity is that he will be resurrected from the dead. So what's the big deal about Easter? What's the big deal about Jesus being resurrected from the dead? It proves he's God in human flesh. Now look, it's easy for somebody to claim to be a messenger from God. It's easy for somebody to say they've been sent by God. There's been all kinds of prophets and preachers and false messiahs who have come and said they are messengers from God. You think of Buddha, you think of Confucius, you think of Muhammad, you think of Joseph Smith, you think of Mary Baker Eddy, you think of um, David Koresh. These are all people who came forward and they have said, I am a prophet of God, I'm a messenger from God. But here's something they never claim to be, I am the creator God. You know, just like Jesus spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, so did every one of those religious leaders. They all spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, but here's the difference. They're still in the earth. Jesus is not in the earth anymore. He's been resurrected from the dead. You can extol over that truth right there. He's alive. And let me tell you why Jesus is risen. In that first Christian sermon that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, look what Peter says. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Why? Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Listen, it's impossible for God to stay dead. It's impossible for God, Jesus in the flesh, to stay in the grave. So that's the first implication for us regarding the resurrection. What does it mean that the resurrection happened? What's the big deal? It tells us Jesus is God in human flesh. Here's the second thing we learn about this. Number two, if the resurrection is true, then Jesus governs our future. Jesus governs our future. And by future, I mean future future. Forever future. The afterlife. Eternity. Forever and ever, amen. That's what Jesus governs. He governs it all. Everything. Let me show you a few passages where he said just this. In Matthew 23, Jesus is speaking to the scribes, Pharisees, and religious hypocrites. And he says, you serpents. You ever been called a serpent before? Jesus called some people serpents. You brood of vipers. How are you going to escape being sentenced to, say that word, How are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? You didn't know you were coming to say hell in the church today, did you? Look what else he said in Luke chapter 10, talking to his closest disciples. He said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in, say that word, heaven. So Jesus proclaimed there is a place in eternity called hell. And real people go to that real place. And Jesus says there is a place in eternity called heaven and real people really do go there why because jesus governs the afterlife he rules our future how do we know this is true because he's alive and he said so and he's the god of heaven and earth 
In John chapter 3, Jesus was in a conversation with this very high-ranking Jewish official by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, highly educated, very intelligent, well-respected in the community, and they're having a conversation chiefly about the afterlife and how you get there. And so notice what Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, 11. He says, truly, truly, Nick, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus is saying, Nick, listen, I know about the other side because I'm from the other side. I know what heaven is like because I've been there. I know what it's about. And you, well-educated, well-respected Nicodemus, you don't receive my testimony. You know, Nicodemus is not the last well-educated, highly intelligent, respected intellectual that did not receive or has not received Jesus' testimony about the afterlife. Let me show you a few examples. Bertrand Russell, the great uh, philosopher from Britain and mathematician, he said this, I believe when I die, I shall rot and nothing of my ego will survive. No, Bertrand, you're wrong. You should have received Jesus' testimony. Here's another one, Carl Sagan. According to Wikipedia, if you can trust Wikipedia, they say about Carl Sagan, he was an American astronomer, planetary scientist, cosmologist, astrophysicist, astrobiologist, author, and science communicator. What a resume, Carl. Look what he said. I would love to believe when I die, some thinking, feeling, part of me will continue, but I know of nothing to suggest that this is more than just wishful thinking. Nothing, Carl? You should have believed Jesus' testimony. In fact, notice what the English theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking had to say. He said, the belief that a heaven or an afterlife awaits us is a fairy tale for people afraid of death. No, Stephen, that's not right. You should have believed Jesus' testimony. And for all of those who may be here today, and you're wondering about the afterlife, what happens when you die? Heaven is a real place. Hell is a real place. And Jesus, the resurrected Son of God, governs our future. I already mentioned the seven I am statements Jesus made in the Gospel of John, which prove my first point, God, Jesus is God in the flesh, but they also affirm the fact that he governs our future. Notice what, uh, in particular, John 14, 6 says. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, there is no other way. There is no other way to the Father. There is no other way to heaven. There is no other way to the afterlife except through Jesus. And we know this is true. Why? Because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. That's what this tells us. He's really the Son of God. He really does govern our future. But here's the third thing that the resurrection of Jesus tells us. Number three, Jesus guards us from fear. You see, because Jesus really did physically rise from the dead, there is a promise that all who trust him can believe in. You too will be resurrected from the dead. 
Because this is true, there is a truth that becomes settled in your heart and in your mind. And guess what? That fear you may have, it gets replaced with peace. The anxiety you may experience, it becomes replaced with courage. Perhaps the most courageous person who ever has walked planet Earth, aside from the Lord Jesus Christ, in my humble estimation, is the Apostle Paul. Because Paul, because of his testimony, he endured tremendous opposition. He faced torturous persecution and difficulties throughout his life. Notice what he says in Philippians 4. He says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, there's one foundational fear, one fundamental fear that everybody deals with at one time or another, and that is the fear of death, the fear of dying. You know, all kinds of people have all kinds of fears, all kinds of phobias. You've probably heard of acrophobia. That's a fear of heights. You've probably heard of arachnophobia. That's a fear of spiders. You've probably heard of ophibiophobia. That's a fear of snakes. Or you've probably heard of claustrophobia. That's a fear of closed-in spaces. But all of these phobias are rooted in one foundational phobia, one fear, and that is thanatophobia. That is the fear of thanatos, the fear of death. But the Bible presents an incredible reality for those who are in Christ Jesus. The reality is you don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear dying. See, Paul could live with great courage because he knew Jesus is alive. And he has promised he will bring to life everyone who believes in him. In fact, notice what he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8. What happens to every believer at the very moment of death? Paul says, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Friend, if you're a Christian, at the very point of your death, when you die, you are immediately spiritually in the presence of Jesus. There is no delay, there is no wait, there is no soul sleep. You are immediately, according to the Apostle Paul, you are at home with the Lord. But that's a temporary situation. See, because the Bible promises that Jesus is coming back again. And when Jesus comes back again, he's going to resurrect every dead saint. I don't care if your body is in a casket, if it's in ashes in an urn, if it's buried at sea, it doesn't matter where your body is. It's going to be resurrected and you're going to receive a brand new body that'll be like Jesus's resurrected eternal body, fit for eternity. In fact, notice what Jesus said. He put it like this in John 6. He said, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. Watch this. And I, the Son of God, will raise him up on the last day. And on the last day that the Bible says this is going to happen, look at what Paul says in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What's he going to do when he comes back? He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Wow. What a future. 
That those who are believers in Jesus, Jesus is not only going to raise us from the dead, but he is going to give to us an eternal physical body. And friends, all these promises that I'm reciting and rehearsing for you today, all these promises are guaranteed because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. Jesus has the authority to accomplish all these promises You know, Jesus talked a little bit about authority and the authority that he has. He put it like this in John chapter 10, verse 18. He said, I have authority to lay my life down. Now, let me stop right there. Don't all of us have that authority? Don't you have that authority? Don't I have that authority? I mean, if you want to take your life, I wouldn't suggest it, but you have that authority to take your life. And so reading that phrase, I think, well, that's no big whoop, Jesus. We all have that authority. Oh, but look what he says next and I have authority to take it up again. Now that's completely different. Who has the authority to take their own life, to lay it down, to give it up, but then also have authority to raise it up from the dead three days later? Nobody, that is but Jesus, he had the authority to raise his life up from the dead. And because of that, if Jesus says, I'm God in human flesh because he has been resurrected from the dead. You know what? I bank it. I bank it. And if Jesus says, I have authority and I have control and I govern heaven and hell and your future. You know what? If Jesus is alive, you know what? I bank that. He can. And if Jesus says, guess what? I'm going to raise your bodies to new life. You know what I do? I bank it because he is alive. There is a promise that recurs throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament alike. I've been told it's the most repeated promise in the Bible. What's the promise? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not fear if Jesus really is who he claims to be. And if he really did what the Bible says and describes him doing, laying down his life and then taking it back up again, when Jesus says, do not be afraid. You know what I do? I bank it. <laughs> I put it in the bank. It's secure. It's true. Which is why the book of Hebrews puts it like this. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? <laughs> the answer? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> say it again. He can do Nothing. Nothing. I can walk with great confidence and great courage because Jesus is alive. And his resurrection proves, number one, he's God in human flesh. His resurrection from the dead proves, number two, he governs our future. And his resurrection, number three, proves Jesus guards us from fear. But let me let you know something. I put this outline together about two weeks ago. But Thursday morning, I woke up at 3 a.m., And this thought came to me. Troy, the gospel's not clear yet in your Easter sermon. And I thought, well, what do I need to to add? I thought it was pretty good. And at 3 a.m., in my bed, on my notepad, in my phone, I made this fourth and final point, and glory to God, they're alliterated. (laughs) Because Jesus is alive. Here's what I wrote on Thursday morning at 3 a.m., 
Jesus guarantees it is finished. It is finished. You know, the gospel writers record seven different statements Jesus made while he is hanging between heaven and earth, dying a criminal's death on a cross. Some of those statements were very divine. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Some of those statements were very human. I'm thirsty. After Jesus said, I thirst, the Bible describes that those who were around the cross when he was dying, they took a long hyssop branch, they stuck a sponge on the end of it, they dipped it down into a jar of sour wine, of vinegar, and they lifted that sponge up to Jesus' mouth hanging on the cross. And notice what John records happened next in verse 30 of John 19. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Friends, listen, when Jesus says, it is finished, it was not a cry of defeat. It was a cry of victory. See, because he didn't say, I am finished. He didn't say, I'm done. I quit. I give up. No, Jesus says, it is finished. What is the it? What's finished? Well, the Greek word underneath our English Bibles there that translated it is finished, one word, it's a word many of you have probably heard before. It's the word tetelestai. Tetelestai. In the first century, this word tetelestai was commonly used in the world of commerce. If someone was a shop owner, a shopkeeper, and you purchased goods from him, and let's say you ran a tab up, and you were building that tab of, of products you were buying from this shopkeeper, when you came and paid your invoice, when you came and paid your tab, the shop owner would stamp or write across your bill, tetelestai, paid in full. It is finished. You owe no more debt. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. Tetelestai, paid in full. You see, because here's the bad news. All of us have a debt. All of us have a debt we cannot pay. It's too big. It's too great. We've all broken God's commands. We've all disobeyed God's law. And we have sinned against an eternally holy, omniscient, righteous God. And the only proportional response and judicial action to that sin against that God is eternal in kind. That's the bad news. But the good news is the best news you'll ever hear. It doesn't matter how many sins you've piled up on your record. It doesn't matter how many times you've broken God's law over and over again and again. It doesn't, how many, it doesn't matter how many skeletons you've been hiding deep in the back of your closet. Jesus says, it is finished. I've paid for every single one of them. At the cross, Jesus stamped, 
paid in full over all your sin. You got a problem with anger? Tetelestai. You got a runny gossip mouth? Tetelestai. You struggle with selfish ambition, with drunkenness, with sexual immorality, with addictions, with lying, with porn, with cheating, with pride, with rebellion, paid in full. Every single one. And you may say, well, pastor, how can I be sure? How can I be sure that every one of my deep, dark sin has been paid for by Jesus? Here's how we know, because he was resurrected from the dead. This proves (laughs) It's really true. I know we've looked at a lot of Bible passages so far, but I want to look at just one more. And if you've missed everything else I've said, I hope you won't miss this. Look at what the Bible says in Romans 1.4. Paul writes, he, that's Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God. We've already affirmed that. In power, according to the spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, because here's the deal. If Jesus had remained in the tomb, like all of those other so-called prophets and spiritual gurus, if Jesus would have remained in the tomb and not been resurrected from the dead, then you know what? Number one, he died for his own sins, not for our sins. And it would mean that he's just another false savior in the long line of false saviors. But since Jesus was resurrected from the dead, here's what this proves. Two things. Number one, it proves that Jesus' death authenticated his claim that he was the Son of God. But it also accomplished this second thing. Listen, that his payment was acceptable by God the Father for your sin. Jesus, it was impossible for him to stay in the grave. Because he made full and final payment. And do you remember all of those other prophets I mentioned earlier? Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, Mary Baker Eddy, and all the rest. Each and every one of them, when they were alive, they offered to their followers some pathway, some means to obtain heaven, eternal life, uh, self-actualization, nirvana, whatever they called it but they're all still dead. If their way was really the true way, well, they wouldn't still be dead. But Jesus, his offer and his way to obtain salvation, we know it's true because he rose from the dead. Last week when I was contemplating this reality, my mind, and it thinks sometimes a little quirky, my mind began to think of all these prophets and preachers who are dead, as skeletons. And as skeletons, they're saying, here, follow my way, follow my door. This is the door to nirvana. Follow me, my door to heaven, eternal life. They're all dead. But then comes Jesus, and he says, I have opened the door through my resurrection. Follow me. And you got two options. You can choose a dead Savior, and guess what? You'll end up just like him. But if you follow the living Savior, you'll end up just like him. And let me tell you, 
of all the supposed would-be messiahs and prophets, of all those skeletons that say, I've got a way for you, follow my way, of all of them, Buddha, Muhammad, Josephus, uh, Joseph Smith, excuse me, Confucius, I, can, I put those together. <laughs> but Josephus too. All of them. Do you know who the biggest false Messiah is that people follow every day? You know who the biggest fake Messiah is that people are trusting in to get them to heaven? I'll tell you exactly who the fake Messiah is. It's you. You think you're your own Messiah. You think I'm my own Savior. If I'm just good enough, if I just pull myself up by my own bootstraps, if I do more good deeds than bad deeds, if I observe the law, if I do all these things, my sense of goodness, my ethics, my self-righteousness, you know what you are? You're another skeleton going to hell. You follow a dead Savior, you're going to end up just like him. Several years ago, someone in our church asked me to go visit a family member who was dying. He was on his deathbed. And so I went by there, literally on the precipice of eternity, this older man is. And as I'm talking to him, I'm sharing a lot of the same realities that I shared with you this morning. And as I get ready to conclude our conversation, I brought him to a point where I simply asked him a question. I said, do you believe what I've told you about Jesus? Do you believe about him proclaiming as the resurrected Son of God, being the only way to the Father, the only way to God. And I'll never forget what he said to me because it sent chills up and down my spine. Here's what he said, lying in his hospital bed. Preacher, me and the man upstairs, we got an understanding. No, sir. You don't have some kind of inside understanding with the creator of the universe the speaker of stars and breather of galaxies. You come to him on his terms or you don't come at all. So this morning, friends, I'm begging you. I'm begging you. Have you turned to the only Savior there is and turned from following yourself, the skeleton dead Savior that's just going to lead you to hell? Have you turned and trusted in Jesus saying, I trust in you alone? Right now, I want to lead us just through a simple prayer. This prayer is not any magic potion or secret formula, or you're not going to learn a secret handshake later or anything. This is just a way of expressing to God, I believe your word, I believe the good news about Jesus, and I surrender my life to you. So I'm going to ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. Nobody's looking around except for me. And if right now you want to just express to the Lord, I believe in Jesus as my Savior. You don't have to pray these words, but you can pray something like them. Dear God, you are the creator of all things. You created me. And because you created me, I am accountable to you. I admit to you, I have broken your commands. I have disobeyed your law. And as a result, 
I deserve the full weight of your justice. I deserve death and hell. But thank you, Jesus, that because of your great love, you have taken the full weight of justice. In my place, when you died on the cross and you have been resurrected to provide new life to me, I now put my whole trust in you, in your sacrificial death and your victorious resurrection. I release any trust I had in any other Savior, including myself. I fully surrender my life to your rule. Thank you for saving me. Now keep your eyes closed and your head bow for just a moment because I want to ask a question. Nobody else is looking around but me. If you just told the Lord, I want you to save me. I trust in the resurrected Jesus. Would you simply slip your hand up so I can see you and pray for you? Anybody? Yes? Anyone else? Yes? Yes? Anyone else? Yes, I see your hands. Okay, everyone look up here. If you trusted Jesus today in his death and victorious resurrection, the promise of the Bible is you are alive. And just as Wade led us to pray about resurrection power, guess what just happened? Resurrection power entered your life. This is the best decision you could ever make. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to come tell me. You can, at the end of the service, when we sing in a moment, I'll be standing right down here in front. You can come tell me then. I'll be in the foyer. You can tell me then. My email address is in our bulletin, Troy at lookoutvalley.org. Very easy to remember. Email me. Let's talk. I want to talk to you about that. I want to hear about that. Because the resurrection is true. Here's a fifth point. Today he resurrected some dead hearts. Hallelujah to God. And that leads to my last thought. Because the resurrection is true, those who trust in Jesus and Jesus alone have a salvation that is sure and a future that is secure.